This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your friend who gets terrified trying to drive in a roundabout, Allie Ward, and oh, we've got a good one. Oh, boy. Absolutely stellar, instant classic here. So this guest is an author of many, 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 many books, and his writing is gorgeous. Even the titles are top shelf, like Monsters in America, Our Historical Obsession with the Hideous and the Haunting, and his latest book, Dark Carnivals, Modern Horror and the Origins of American Empire. Just every sentence is beautifully descriptive and heavy with vibes in his observations of human behavior. He has a deep reservoir of cultural knowledge. He's just, uh, he's the perfect guest. He got his PhD at the University of Mississippi, and he teaches courses such as Monsters in America, Horror, Narratives of Fear and Violence in American History, and Histories of Death, the Gothic and Social Revolution at Charleston College. And my friend Max Oswald, hey Max, put us in touch, and I was I was so jittery. I was so worried. She's so cool that I would just blow the whole thing. And the first half of this episode is a lot of monster theory and sociological causes and effects of monsters. And then after the ad break, we get more into Patreon questions and more about specific monsters. And you can submit questions ahead of time if you want via patreon.com slash ologies for as little as a dollar a month. And you can sport ologies shirts and hats and totes via ologiesmerch.com. You can also support the show for $0 just by leaving us a review. On I read all of them, such as this still wet one from M4, whose therapist recommended the show and who wrote, I particularly gravitate toward ologies on darker days when I need a reminder that life is incredible and there's so much to appreciate. And I appreciate that M4 and everyone who left reviews and everyone who just spreads the word and tells your friends and your enemies about the show. Okay, teratology. Oh boy. Okay. This is a real word. It comes from the Greek for monster. And it is the study of monsters in folklore and fiction. It is also horrifyingly the term used to describe the study of physiological, developmental, quote, abnormalities. But obviously, I prefer the term that is applied to the study of the myths of monsters and fantastical creatures, which, again, is another legit use in the literature. Teratology, scary movies and monsters, the creatures are the what, 
The Spooktober is the one. So let's get into it. Rise from your crypts. Turn your ears on for Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, the bride of Frankenstein's monster, zombies, chupacabras, bigfoots, werewolves, babadooks, folk stories of helpful ghosts, monsters on various continents, horror versus monster movies, secret messages and scary movies, the director's cuts that your government may not have wanted you to see, how monsters mirror our fears, what to do if you suspect you have one under the bed, very tall ladies, sea snakes, Hollywood production secrets, special effects makeup, and more with professor, acclaimed author, horror fan, monster expert, and teratologist, Dr. W. Scott Poole. recommended me because I was very excited to be able to talk with you. I've enjoyed your work as well. Oh, so uh, oh my gosh. it's kind of a cool <laughs> thing for me to get to do. So I'll, I will try not to fanboy. But no, <laughs> when I got the email back that you're in, I was trying not to fan. I was really nervous. <laughs> That's yeah. really funny. Well, see, now we don't have to be nervous. <laughs> now we're good friends. <laughs> Okay, we got our nerves out of the way. So on to less scary stuff, like body horror and monsters. So this is Scott Poole, he, him. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Poole or Professor Poole, <laughs> but I really love it when people call me Scott. So okay. let's do that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good, Dr. Poole. So <laughs> um, now, Professor, you teach courses? On yes, monsters. <laughs> I do. I teach monster courses. I absolutely do. And, you know, it's the most fun thing, sort of, I guess, fun in italics <laughs> to say when people at parties find out that I'm a history professor and they ask me what my topic is. And <laughs> I respond, not Civil War Reconstruction or the American Revolution or Han China, but monsters. <laughs> I do monsters and, and popular culture. So yeah, and they are history courses. Uh, what I kind of build my classes around is the idea that part of why monsters are so important to us is that they are ways that we talk about all kinds of other stuff that's really important to us. Gender, politics, the way that we construct society, even economic inequality is an issue that comes up when you talk about monstrosity. And I think this is true with kind of the monstrous film tradition as well. Because monsters are quite literally out there, they're beyond the margins. It's just crazy stuff. For that reason, it's like this little space that we can talk about things that, you know, it's difficult to talk about when it's sort of done straight, when we're not using these kinds of very, very strong images. Mm -hmm. Are monsters in one way metaphor? Are they portals into these discussions? They are definitely portals into the discussions. I think that they are something stronger than metaphors. 
And what I mean by that is this. When you use a metaphor, you always know you're using it. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know that you're not talking about a, a real thing. And one of the things that I emphasize to students in my classes when we talk about these kinds of things is that for many people, not for me and not for many of them, but for many people, different kinds of monsters are very real. And the kinds of anxieties that these kinds of monsters express are certainly very real. So, for example, you can have a conversation with someone and you end up talking about vampires. And they say, well, of course, I love vampires, but I don't believe in vampires. Then let's say the conversation turns to Bigfoot. Well, they're big Bigfoot believers. You know, if you don't believe in Bigfoot, you don't know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> and this is true of so many of these things. One of the things I tell my students is that in the American context, because of the influence of religion, particularly evangelical religion, the idea of Satan and demonic forces are, these are probably the monsters that, you know, are most widely believed in, in the American context. And yet they also show up in our horror films. And Going back in terms of historically, that's such a good point about religion and the stories that we have used to try to teach each other. How far back do monsters even go? And what's the difference between a, something that is posed as reality versus something that we know is story? Mm -hmm. I think that they are in many respects, and I think there's evidence that they are older than Homo sapiens, <laughs> that sort of our prehistoric ancestors 100,000 years ago had a experience of the monstrous. The reason that I say that is that most scholars are pretty sure that the first experiences of religion were related to ceremonial burial. In fact, that may go back like 300,000 years. So like leaving gifts for the dead. I got you something. And this likely held meaning in terms of grief, in terms of community solidarity. Politics probably entered into it. You know, who gets a proper ceremonial burial, that kind of thing. For more on these subjects, we linked in the show notes episodes on thanatology, about death and dying, deserology, about mortuary makeup, taphology is about headstones and burial grounds and cemeteries, and of course, vampirology. But <laughs> there's also these kind of ritual of terror that surrounded those prehistoric burials. The kind of the idea of like, well, what if they come back and... What if they're mad ah. <laughs> when, <laughs> when they do? So there, there's a sense in which things like the leaving of gifts, the burial of people with gifts, there's these feelings of guilt and placation and maybe, you know, even kind of a search for absolution from these creatures and fr from our former kinfolk, like what will happen if they return? And I don't think that there's a, a lot of light between those truly, truly, truly ancient ideas and the idea of the monster. Mm -hmm. What exactly is defined as a monster? What's a monster? What's a demon? What's a zombie? What's a cryptid? When it comes to the teratological, how do you define that as an expert in this? 
So uh, here's the thing about me that drives <laughs> some of my other monsterologists crazy. <laughs> okay. I don't define <laughs> uh, the monster. Now, let me back up. Here. I was going to say, well, I guess this interview is over. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So no, don't cut. Yeah, don't cut me <laughs> off yet. I've, I'm pretty sure I got something okay. here. So so hang in here with me. I think that the monster, by its very nature, is definition defying. One of the things that when I first became interested, really, especially in kind of the academic study of monsters, like thinking about them as a scholarly topic, is just the fact that. It's kind of this category that completely ignores categories. <laughs> and so, for example, uh, you mentioned vampires. Okay, vampires, we count those as monsters. We also count Godzilla as a monster. <laughs> we also throw serial killers in there in kind of our spectrum of the monstrous. And so what do any of these different kinds of expressions of horror, chaos, what do they have really in in common? And as I looked at it through time, and as I looked at it as a historian, like what's going on when people are afraid of these particular things. And so what I decided is that it's really sort of the context itself, the political, the historical, the cultural context that defines the monster. One example of this would be that in the 19th century, for about 60 years, Americans, most Americans, certainly middle-class Americans, were obsessed with the idea of the sea serpent. Okay. <laughs> and, and when I say they were obsessed, I mean they loved reading accounts of sightings. Uh -huh. There were lots and lots of Americans that were absolutely sure that they had seen one. There was an incident in the 1830s in Gloucester, Massachusetts, in which about 130 people claimed that a sea serpent showed up in Gloucester Harbor, and they all mm -hmm. saw it. There was even sheet music <laughs> that you could play on the, the, the piano at home. It was called the Sea Serpent Polka. Uh, <laughs> is a really... <laughs> And no, I can't play that for you, Allie. If I could, I definitely would. That was a clip from the 1850s banger, Sea Serpent Polka, which was composed by Eastern European-born pianist Maurice Strakosch and covered by Jamie Winters via SoundCloud 170 years later. So according to the 1887 New York Times obituary of Maurice Strakosh, he was a musical prodigy and began making really good money performing concerts at the age of 11. But his parents disapproved, so he got out of Dodge. Like later losers, he hightailed it to Vienna at the age of 12 with about, reported by the New York Times, two bucks in his pocket, which is like, how is this little man even going to eat? Then I realized that that was reported in 1887. So I looked it up and adjusted for inflation. And that's like two grand in today's money. So this kid was loaded like a little tiny Justin Bieber who got emancipated and wrote a polka about a sea serpent. I was shocked to find that his obit and Wikipedia page both neglect to mention this composition. So maybe it was a blip in his otherwise very noteworthy life. But also, I mean, come on, 
Name a better song about a sea serpent. Name any song about a sea serpent. Hopefully you know that where I'm going with this is who's scared of sea serpents today? Nobody that I know. We're not watching films about them. We're not reading books about them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in the 19th century, the sea serpent was it. (laughs) The sea serpent was their vampire, was their zombie film, was all those things. And when I really looked into it, one of the things that I discovered is that there's so much talk and so much interest in the possibility of these kinds of creatures because it's at a time when the nature of scientific evidence, there's a lot of discussion of the nature of scientific evidence and what counts as scientific Mm -hmm. evidence. And the sea serpent became kind of a perfect forum to discuss those kinds of things. It became a forum to discuss Darwinism. It became a forum for scientists themselves to talk about what it meant to do professional science, so like the actual professionalization of the profession. So sea serpents don't have a lot to do with vampires, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they're both monsters. And so I think it's in many respects the historical context that creates our monsters. And did they ever figure out what that sea serpent was? Was it like an oar fish? Was it just one of those big wiggly ones? So I'm pretty sure that they were seeing a whale. Okay. <laughs> the oarfish has been suggested as for the the actually kind of hundreds of worldwide sea serpent sightings. And there was actually a New England whaling ship, I believe this was in the 1840s, that they claimed that they had uh, close to the Antarctic Circle they had managed to get their hands on the corpse of a sea serpent. Ooh. And they were going to bring it back to New York City. Mm -hmm. And like runners had come like in advance, kind of say, announcing that this was happening. So there were stories in the New York Times. And then they got back home and they were like, sorry, we we misplaced. (laughs) How do you misplace a Caesar? Well, you know, you just lose stuff, (laughs) right? (laughs) <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, yeah, but I think that shows you like kind of the level of fascination that, you know, it's been lost to us. It's also a little bit like in I, a class that I teach on uh, the 20th century horror film, my students are like pretty insistent to me that 1931's James Whale's Frankenstein is, is not scary at all. Hmm. You know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula is not scary at all. Films are much scarier now. And, you know, they were really terrifying in the 1930s. And it's not that people in the 1930s were naive or (laughs) that they were less smart than us or had less exposure to. I mean, these were people going through the Great Depression and (laughs) about to face the Second World War. So they're aware that the world's a challenging place. It's just that. A part of it, at least, part of it is that there were elements of the Frankenstein story that pushed certain kinds of buttons in the 1930s that it does not in quite the same way today. So I, I do think that monsters are very much born out of the historical context and out of the culture that creates them. What do you think that Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster, I don't know if you have thoughts on what we should call him, but uh, what what buttons do you think he was pushing at that time? 
Well, I tell you, as a horror film fan and a historian, one of kind of the most eye-opening moments that I really kind of ever had in doing this kind of work was watching a, a scene specifically in actually maybe my favorite classic horror mm. film, The Bride of Frankenstein mm. in 1935, just a wonderful fantasy horror film. There is in that film a moment in which the monster, you know, very famously, there's always the villagers with the pitchforks and torches, and he's being chased. Get him alive if you can, but get him! Search every ravine, every crevice, but the fiend must be found! And then he's actually tied up and raised up on this pole amid this really scary crowd that has gathered around him. And I realized, oh my God, this is the 1930s. This is the heart of the moment when African-American men in particular were being lynched across the country. This is a lynching. (sighs) And then next step there are people who watched this film in 1935 who had participated in a lynching or consider this, who had had a family member who had been murdered by a white mob. Mm -hmm. And for a while I thought, well, you know, the old thing of like, well, you're reading too much into this. And then As I was looking at reviews of the film, actually, when I was researching Monsters in America and wanting to write about it and see what reviewers said at the time, no comment about this in American papers, but in the foreign press, specifically a review in a British paper, I believe, in fact, it was the Times, the London Times, noted that there was a scene in the film that will remind viewers of nothing so much as a Georgia lynching. Oh my God. For a very brief primer on this horrifying facet of America, you can visit the NAACP's article, History of Lynchings in America, which recounts that a typical lynching involved a criminal accusation and arrest and the assembly of a mob, followed by seizure, physical torment, and murder of the victim. Lynchings were often public spectacles attended by the white community in celebration of white supremacy. Photos of lynchings were often sold as souvenir postcards. And the atrocities were common, even in the early 20th century in the American South. And there was an anti-lynching bill posed to Congress in 1918, but it was defeated by a filibuster in the Senate. And lynchings finally started to decline toward the 1930s after the NAACP waged this campaign and persuaded Southern newspapers to publicly condemn lynchings. And then white businesses were boycotted in the South, which changed some tides. So in America, money talks the loudest. And so, you know, monsters can be great fun, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but part of the horror of the monster is that it can also become a way for us to experience the terror of the times in which we live in. I actually later learned that the director, James Whale, who directed both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, that he had become close friends 
interestingly enough, with Paul Robeson, Mm -hmm. the musician, civil rights activist, very strong advocate on the American left in the 30s and 40s. He worked with him on the film Showboat a few years later. Uh, He's very famous for the song Old Man River in that pretty lavish Hollywood production. Mm -hmm. But Paul Robeson, who was really a a true radical in the very best sense on, on these issues, probably did, you know, influence James Whale to think about that imagery, and in part because that imagery is actually not in, uh, at least in the same way, in Mary Shelley's 1818 and 1831 Frankenstein. Mm. Have sociologists or historians looked into what the effect might have been on the public, either consciously or subconsciously, of that imagery being a mirror to what was happening in society at the time? I have tried to find responses to it, and not only actually in relation to those films or that particular issue, but really just sort of how people responded to sort of what we might call the politics of the horror film in earlier ages and and even our own time. One thing I always like to tell people about this and that we always talk about in class is that we, we should never assume, this is true of anything, we should never assume that people are picking up what's being put mm-hmm. down, right? <laughs> like there are certainly plenty of people, I'm certain, who managed to watch the Barbie film without learning very much about fourth wave (laughs) feminism, right? I mean, like, they thought the color palette was great and the songs were fun. And that was kind of it. You know, they missed it. So certainly, like, even things that are much more implicit, it's really difficult to see. Where I think it becomes more interesting is as we get closer to our own time, the 1960s specifically, And horror films become much more explicitly political. Mm -hmm. Um, George Romero employing a African-American male lead in Night of the Living Dead, uh, a protagonist, uh, the hero, really, of the Mm -hmm. piece. All persons who die during this crisis, from whatever cause, will come back to life to seek human victims. I'm telling you, they can't get in here. And so I think it becomes much more striking than often I found in particularly in politically progressive horror in the 30s, 40s and 50s. There's almost this feeling of it being a kind of an end joke Mm. for the people who get it and then everybody else kind of does it. Going back to director James Whale, his Hollywood career started in 1930 with a film called Journey's End, and then he directed Frankenstein, Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein. I looked him up, and he was also weirdly gorgeous, like David Bowie in sepia tones. Whale, who was an out gay man in Hollywood in the 1930s. He also included a lot of in-jokes for his own community Mm -hmm. that very much went over the head (laughs) of uh, everybody that saw the film. Plenty of people who still see the film don't really see how it's kind of clearly queer-coded in certain ways. One such way is The Bride of Frankenstein's original plot point of Dr. Frankenstein bailing on his new wife on his wedding night to harvest a human heart from his new bride and then working alongside another male doctor to create life. And the Hayes Code was this thing. They were content guidelines for entertainment and they were in place from the mid thirties to the late sixties. And they forbade anything that would compromise the sanctity of marriage. And this is nearly a hundred years ago, but 
these discussions are still taking place, especially regionally in the United States. I tend to have like a pretty sensitive ear and it's really subtle, but I, I noticed that you might maybe be from the South. Yes. I know that you have a, a very subtle accent. Um, <laughs> just kidding. It's very <laughs> obvious, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, now, what's a little bit of your upbringing and your intersection with this? How long have you been a horror fan too? Oh, like since I was six. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> no, I really have. So here's the thing. And, you know, Gosh, we have to talk about like my accent and my age <laughs> because here's the deal. So when I was a little kid in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. on Saturday afternoon, my local rural South Carolina television station had an afternoon series, a film series that they called Shock Theater. Oh my God, okay. And Shock Theater was actually something that went back to the 1950s because what had happened is that Universal Studios, as well as some other studios, but mainly Universal, had sold a lot of their old archival uh, films like the great Monster Mash films of the 1930s and 40s to local TV stations. And so for especially as late as the 70s now, you know, it it was just a really easy thing for a small station to throw together like a double feature Uh of the 1931 Frankenstein and the 1941 Wolfman. And so for years (laughs) on Saturday afternoons, (laughs) I just was absolutely glued to the set and saw everything from, you know, just true incredible classic films like Bride of Frankenstein to just absolute garbage like (laughs) The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, (laughs) which I have to say is still a terribly guilty pleasure. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, incredibly huge, with incredible desires for love, and vengeance. The most grotesque monstrosity of all, a gorgeous and powerful woman breaks through the roof of a building. Did it have a glass ceiling, perhaps? Terrifying. And that was also the era, it it wasn't really kind of the golden age for this, but magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland were still Mm -hmm. around. And so when it was, you know, I could uh, talk my mother into going and picking me up a comic book at the drugstore. There was also like these wonderful monster magazines Mm -hmm. that had all these photographs of films I had not been able to see and stories about the actors and stories about the directors. And, And I just loved it. And I actually think I loved it in part because I did live in a small not very interesting, uh, <laughs> very conservative, and also very religious community. And so the kind of just like wide open imaginative landscape that that kind of stuff opened up in that otherwise kind of sort of dreary time and place was just really wonderful. How did your family feel about you a tiny tot being glued to horror films on Saturdays? Not good. <laughs> It was a real problem, Allie. It was a real problem. And so there were at least several times that Shock Theater was banned. Uh, Several different times going into my teenage years, the comics and the magazines were also Mm -hmm. banned. One of the most fun things about that side of it, though, is that in the 1980s, if you were a big horror film fan, By the 80s, it wasn't Famous Monsters. It was a magazine called Fangoria. I remember that. I remember that. 
and Fangoria is still with us. Yeah, Fangoria, they had these really, truly, um, honestly, like I completely understand why my parents were so upset because the covers were just horrible. You know, they were just bloody and they were like just faces melting and just, you know, all, all this stuff. And so, of course, when my mom managed to find these, you know, even though I did sequester them away and all that kind of stuff, she she located them and they were banned from the I'm house. Sure. And and looking back, I totally get it. Like I actually do kind of understand that. But here's the thing: fast forward to uh, let's see, about 2016, and Fangoria did a feature about my Lovecraft book, and my mom was like with her little old lady friends. Uh, she was like. Oh, my son, look at this. He's in this magazine. Look. Yeah, that's a severed head on the cover, but it's my, yeah, it's my. <laughs> I'm sure at the time, though, she was like, why can't he just be in a Playboys? Why can't I find a uh, I know, yeah. I, I almost think, it's funny you say that, because I almost think they would have been a little bit more comfortable <laughs> with that, because like I was always, if you can't tell, like, I already was kind of a weird kid, you know? And so, like, I think that, uh, well, it's at least it's like a normal right. interest, you know? Uh, it's something... We get what's going on there, but we don't know what all this is. Well, I'm sure in a parent's worst fantasies is if you've got a, you know, a magazine with limbs and blood, you think like, okay, he's training to be a homicidal person. Right. Some kind of professional killer is kind of his career goal. So I wonder, how did you, instead of being someone who put bodies in dumpsters, how did you become (laughs) Professor Poole? Yeah. So there's a couple of things about that. One of the things that interests me, I think, from a scholarly perspective, as well as from a personal one, is how frequently people I know who love monsters like like I do, often, like me, turn out to be vegetarians, oh. uh, turn out to be quite nonviolent people, both politically and also in their personal <laughs> lives. And although I do sort of try to stay away from doing sort of psychotherapy with monsters, I don't <laughs> think of them as really kind of psychological phenomena primarily. But I do think it's true that having a space where the darkest parts of yourself, but also the darkest parts of your culture mm-hmm you can talk about those things. And, and I mean, with oneself and one solitude as much as, as with other fans, that it does give you a different kind of perspective. Heads up, we have a two-part scholarly episode examining the sociology of fandom with legit anthropologist Meredith Levine. And yes, we'll link it for you in the show notes. You end up not, for example, glorifying violence in the way that films, say, a superhero film in which we witness the destruction of an entire city, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no blood right. somehow, there's yeah. no bodies, like the whole city's been flattened by a, a U.S.-based, super-powered right. uh, individual, <laughs> and somehow there's no casualties mm. that we see. But There's that level of violence that seems to have kind of mainstream appeal, which interestingly has, I think, a connection to the way that we think about war in this country, the way that, you know, since the Persian Gulf War going back to the early 1990s, there's been this sense that, well, it's 
it's something that lights up on CNN. It's something that happens on the screen. It's like watching a video game. We don't actually see any of the bodies. We don't see any of the casualties. Mm -hmm. It's something very different than to watch a film in which, well, there aren't mass casualties. There are maybe three or four characters that you've developed some kind of attachment to that suffer something really terrible. And so I think it gives you a different sensibility about violence, uh, causes you to think about death as something that is not just simply nameless and faceless. Mm. You know, I've wondered before how there's an escalation almost of specifics, visual specifics, when we might look at Bela Lugosi's version of Vampire Not Scary, but then our horror films get Mm -hmm. more and more suspenseful and more specific, where we've then seen a wave of true crime being popular as like the next horror genre. Um, You know, there's a really, really bright line for me between the horror film and true crime. I think they're doing very different things. I think they're often appealing to very different audiences. I actually can't abide true crime. Um, I don't watch true crime documentaries. And really the entire reason is that it, it is viewing the suffering of actual others as opposed to what is the imaginative experience of violence, grief, and human suffering. And so it's interesting. I mean, I, in talking about how either my parents felt about the horror film or the churches that they went to or the community that we lived in, there was always this discussion of becoming desensitized to Mm -hmm. violence. I sort of feel like I became the horror film and, and monsters in general kind of sensitized me in a lot of ways to violence and what it means This is actually why true crime and the popularity of it disturbs me is that, well, I think that this is maybe what all of my my elders were worried about when I was Mm -hmm. a kid. Like, this is the being desensitized. This is the suffering of others being turned into coin. Um, I actually find that trend deeply troubling. And I think that it has a larger political meaning. I think that it's important that we ask questions like, why are we consuming and binging hours and hours and hours of true crime in a country that imprisons a larger percentage of its population than any other country in the world? Is that essentially reinforcing some of our ideas about law and order, reinforcing some of our ideas about like dangerous others Essentially giving us real monsters, embodying monsters very often in uh, people who are marginalized already. So I do separate the love of and interest in in monsters and horror film from true crime binging, for sure. We did an episode called Victimology with Dr. Callie Renison, who discusses this and how victims of homicide in the U.S. are overwhelmingly black men, but that's not reflected in most documentary crime entertainment. And for more on victims advocacy, you can see that episode linked in the show notes. But getting away from the actual suffering of real people and back to fiction. Where do you think the line is between monsters and horror? Because I think of monsters and I think of them being intact And then I think of horror and I think of blood. (laughs) And so where's the line? Well, first of all, 
you're absolutely on okay. to something. <laughs> and there is, I think, a tie between what we think of as gore and horror mm-hmm. that is very particular to really the last hundred years of global history. My sense of it is that what we think of as the horror film is actually born in the aftermath of the Great War, of World War I. This is when you see uh, the first usage of the term horror film. Supernatural films that had come before that were of a different type, uh, tended not to make use or make reference to gore, to the reanimated dead, to the literal supernatural. And so I think that what we think of as horror is a very 20th, 21st century experience. One of the things that happened with the world wars and post-colonial conflicts that have followed is that essentially there's sort of the progress of combat medicine at the very same time that there's all these new terrible ways of killing and mutilating the human uh. body. World War One is the early example of that. World War One, side note, lasted from 1914 to 1918, and it marked the real shift from wars fought on the backs of horses to the birth of the modern military-industrial complex via innovations of weapons of mass destruction, like the tank and chemical weapons, improved submarines and machine guns, and the MK2 pineapple-looking hand grenade. Weapons manufacturers are like, what a great war. But if you're like, wait, what about the 2022 Taylor Swift bonus track on the album Midnight's called The Great War? Is this about military trenches? The lyrics go, your finger on my hairpin triggers, soldier down that icy road, looked up at me with honor and truth, broken and blue. So I called off the troops and then some stuff about love. And this song inspired by a world war, then inspired a course at the University of Ghent with Professor Ellie McClausland, and it's titled English Literature, Taylor's version. But yeah, the global rise of tearing up each other's bodies for money and land and resources and religions was the putrid shit that fertilized the growth of monster and horror genres as we know them now. This continued all the way down to the present. So I think that like it's it's actually not an accident that in the United States, it's in post-Vietnam America, mm-hmm. a, a country that had become used to seeing the reality of gore, the reality of the mutilated human body, that you have the explosion of interest in the slasher film, films dealing with war and horror. And in fact, there's a very direct connection there. Uh, One of the great, uh, many would argue the great makeup artist, sort of the star of Fangoria uh, magazine was Tom Savini, who worked on films like George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, uh, the first Friday the 13th film, a number of the classics of the horror genre. He was a combat veteran of Vietnam. Oh, gosh. And has spoken about this. Actually, he was very specifically a, a combat photographer. And one of the ways that he dealt with that experience is while it was happening, <laughs> he essentially imagined it as special effects. Wow. He just sort of 
called it special effects in order to endure, you know, seeing what was happening to his friends and to his comrades. And, you know, then in certain respects, this was therapeutic for him in later years. But one of the real geniuses, you know, of gore effects in the modern horror film, he brought that with him from Vietnam. I mean, that was quite literally sort of the war coming home. Oh, wow. I found a 1984 clip of Tom Savini doing a show and tell of his ghoulish effects for one David Letterman. And I got to say, Tom saunters out with this jaunty Saturday night fever swagger. He's got tight jeans, a mustache. He's chewing gum and just has this cool confidence of your older brother's friend letting you check out his Trans Am. This man could get it. Even Letterman was clearly enamored. What is it? Special makeup effects, it's called. I see. And and what does that, uh, when we go to a film, what of your work do we see? Oh, well, anytime somebody's head is blown off or a cutthroat or a little creature runs around, that's me. Now, uh, having, a head, <laughs> having a head blown off, it comes under makeup? Special makeup effects, sure. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, let's, let's take a look okay. at some of the stuff. I wonder if that was just a way to deal, obviously, with the trauma, compartmentalize it. I think so. And I, I think that, you know, it's mostly anecdotal evidence. I, I also just have a sense that that's why that generation also is particularly interested in those mm-hmm. films. And the 70s and 80s are, you know, uh, films today don't have the same amount of gore and blood and et cetera, as you would find in the era of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the first Halloween and the Friday the 13th films and the Nightmare on Elm Street films. We've covered Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Son of Frankenstein, Dawn of the Dead Zombies, 50-Foot Women, Sea Serpents, Godzilla, Friday the 13th. So it's never been a better time to explore more of the ghouls. Halloween Monster Connection, October Monsters. Why is it (laughs) such a good month for them? (laughs) <sighs> well, you know, it's interesting. I think that the answer to that is that dating back to the earliest uh, Christian celebrations of All Hallows' Eve, of Halloween, the day before the Feast of All Saints, it is a vigil day for the dead. It's always been a time for ghosts. <laughs> it's always been a time for unquiet spirits. I mean, maybe going back to the third and fourth century of the Christian era. Now, it's interesting, though, because if, as some scholars do, you wanted to do a really strict kind of taxonomy of monsters, like are monsters and ghosts really the same thing? I was wondering that. And how do hungry ghosts in some Asian cultures factor into that? Right. Well, and here's the thing. I think you could... If you wanted to, you know, draw a strict line, for whatever reason you were doing that, <laughs> between unquiet spirits and monsters, maybe you could do that. Maybe you could say, well, a ghost is always, forever and always, uh, we're talking about a human being once alive who isn't anymore, who now can't find rest, mm-hmm. right? And a monster is, well... I guess if we were doing this for reals, we would just say, well, a monster is just anything else <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's supernatural and scary. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that in the human experience and thinking about this in just kind of deep anthropological time, I do think that the ghost is in a lot of ways and the idea of the ghost is at the root of 
our idea of the monstrous. One of the places you actually see this is in China, where there are these traditions that go back at at least to the Han Dynasty of the so-called hopping vampires, the Zhang Shi, the hopping vampire. And these vampires are your kin, your loved ones. Nice to see you again. How's the family? Who are going to return if they have been improperly buried, if you buried them in the wrong place, if their burial rites have been performed at the wrong time. There's a lot of ways to mess this up, <laughs> in, in other words. <laughs> and they're going to come back. And they're going to be swollen with blood because they are blood drinkers. They're called hopping vampires because, well, they're actually the physically resurrected dead. And, you know, they they have kind of a calcium deficiency, like their their bones aren't what they're supposed to be. So they're they can't walk like they did. And they're going to come after you. They're thirsty. <laughs> Right, they they are, and it does at a later moment, several centuries later, blend into the Buddhist tradition that then spreads into Korea and Japan of the idea of the hungry ghost, uh, a reanimated loved one who, for a variety of different reasons, is still desiring something that they have lost in life. So hungry. <laughs> So the question is, you know, are we talking about ghosts or are we talking about monsters? Uh, it seems like they're kind of acting the same. They're both creatures that, that represent a kind of a chaos, a kind of imbalance, uh, our own fear of death, our fear of having a bad death. I think that's one of the more interesting things about the monstrous is that we can say like, well, they embody death and they do, but None of us are able to escape that. I mean, we're all going to face death, but they tend to embody sort of the wrong death. Right. The worst case scenario the, death. The worst right? case scenario, death by violence, which is in some ways the very essence of what we think about when we think about the nature of evil, um, the use of violence to cut life short, uh, to give someone or someone's a wrong death. So all of that to say, I'm not really too interested in the distinctions between ghosts and monsters, because I think they kind of root around in that same part of our, our subconscious and come from the same kind of needs that we have to think about our own finite and often chaotic experience. Mm. It's so interesting how the more we find out about life's mysteries, the more we can just say, eh, it's fine. Like sea serpents, yeah. <laughs> eh, it's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, fine. We're on to something else. Something else is scarier. Um, can I ask you questions from listeners? Yes, let's do that. Oh, they're so excited. And we're excited to make a donation in Dr. Poole, a.k.a. Professor Poole, a.k.a. Scott's name. And this week he chose the International Rescue Committee, or IRC, which was founded at the call of Albert Einstein in 1933 and is now at work in over 50 crisis-affected countries, helping to date nearly 33 million people. And they provide healthcare, learning resources for children, they empower communities, and they're always seeking to address the inequity facing women and girls. So you can find out more at rescue.org. And thanks to sponsors of the show for making that donation possible in Scott's name. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. (gasps) That's Q-U-I-N-C-E. 
com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, you can submit questions before the interviews by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash ologies for as little as a buck a month. I may say your name on the show, possibly correctly. Let's hear some of your questions. They were a scream. Um, Connor, they them had a great question. Can you talk about humanoid monsters versus non-humanoid, like, you know, humanoid like werewolves and zombies and mummies versus non-humanoid like dragons and the kraken? And they said, it seems like ancient societies tended to have more animalistic monsters while modern societies have more humanoid monsters. Um, is that true? Is there any psychology to explain that? I do think that for many ancient peoples, there was often the sense that a monster embodied chaotic elements of the natural world. We can see this, for example, with a, a pop culture monster that has a an ancient past, uh, Pazuzu from The Exorcist. Oh. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Before uh, Pazuzu made his big screen debut back in 1973, he was an ancient Sumerian kind of demon god. Okay, so Pazuzu was considered a son of God and also the reigning monarch of the demons of the wind. So maybe he was also the king of farts. But in The Exorcist, a priest finds an old statue of Pazuzu on an archaeological dig. And it's like, cool, hope this doesn't follow me and possess a girl in a nightgown who stabs herself in the crotch with a crucifix later on. How wrong he was. Pazuzu does not fuck around. And he was connected with sickness and also with desert winds, which are both chaotic in their own way, but also were believed to bring sickness and to kind of bring a sort of impersonal death. So one argument has been that as the world, as, you know, at post-scientific revolution 400 years ago, and then increasingly as our experience becomes kind of Google mapped and, you know, there's sort of no hidden corners out there anymore, uh, we're turning more and more to more human-like creatures. But I also find evidence of people of the distant past using their monsters in very sophisticated and and very interesting ways. Um, Can I tell you about a monster I really love that's a good example? Yes. So in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this really scary guy uh, named Yamantaka. Okay. And He's quite horrifying. According to some accounts, he has, I believe, 34 different hands. Mm. Some they said he has 36. Each one, he's got this this razor-sharp dagger in them. He wears a necklace of human heads. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. And, uh, which is not what you want, right? It's not what you want to see. Nope. Here's the thing, though. (laughs) He is actually a teacher of enlightenment. Oh. He is, uh, Yamantaka, is actually the avatar of a particular bodhisattva, an enlightened being, whose goal is to free human beings from the terror of death. 
And so the daggers and those many, many hands, however many he has, they are to cut through the ties to the ego that is keeping one from experiencing freedom and bound to the wheel of karma. The different heads actually represent different stages of one's life in which you've been destructive or in in Buddhist terms, you've been unskillful when it comes to your own egocentric desires that have tied you to karma. And so he's absolutely terrifying, but even his sort of physical manifestation is meant to turn you to a more spiritual path. And, you know, this is an idea that is many, many centuries old. So it is a little hard for me to get completely on board with the idea that, well, at one time, monsters were just expressions of things we didn't get about, you know, because thunderstorms scared us or whatever. And now it's serial killers. I think that ancient peoples, peoples of, of every area have been able to think in complex ways about their monsters. That sounds like the scariest therapist ever, but effective. They're like, I'm going to help you get over your fear of death, but I am going to have a lot of hands with razors on them. (laughs) Right. Well, and just to be clear for all of your listeners, you know, if your therapist is wearing a necklace of human heads, (laughs) I would call that just a sea of red flags, you know, so I would, I would move on. It's like, but they're covered in network. (laughs) Right. What am I going to do? Um, Right. I know. We had so many questions from so many listeners. I will list them in an aside about cryptids. Okay. So quick definition. Cryptids are creatures that some cryptozoologists swear really exist, such as the big hairy Bigfoot of North America, the big hairy Yeti of the Himalayan mountains, the winged hooved dragon looking Jersey devil, which nearby Philly residents could probably take in a fight all while not spilling their beer, or the long necked dinosaur looking aquatic monster in Scotland's Loch Ness. I think my, my favorite might be something called the Mongolian death worm, which is a two foot long poisonous alive sausage, or this thing called the Loveland frog of Ohio, which was a four foot tall humanoid frogman that scampered across roads and just scared the swamp water out of local residents until a cop shot it and it turned out to be an old escaped pet iguana that had lost its tail and it deserved better, to be honest. But other patrons who had cryptid questions included Addie McBaddy, Jessica Fowler, Lily Mackenzie King, Ellie Schaefer, Slofi, Sarah Meaden, Connor They Them, The Ren You Know, Kayla Pilcher, Bethan Greer, Carson, and Brittany Corrigan. What is a cryptid? What's the difference between a cryptid and a monster? Megan Walsh Gerard wants to know what is the best cryptid and why is it Mothman? <laughs> For plenty of Mothman discussion, please see the Creepy Crawlies episode, aka Forest Entomology, with Dr. Kristen Wickert, linked in the show notes, and we discuss his gleaming steel butt. But anyway, do you believe in cryptids? So where does a cryptid come into all this? Do I believe in cryptids? Um, (laughs) Well, I've never, uh, so this is going to upset people, probably. I don't believe in anything that is not falsifiable. Okay. It's sort of not incumbent on us, on me (laughs) in this case, to, you know, believe in something that there's not evidence for. You don't even have to say, well, maybe there is. Because, you know, of course, that's kind of a game we could play about everything Mm -hmm. all day long. Uh, 
there's a jar of mayonnaise in my refrigerator that created the universe. Prove me wrong. <laughs> the night of June 27th, it became sentient. You know, uh, how do you know that's not true? <laughs> but I love cryptids. I do love the Mothman story. I love the Bigfoot story. I love one of our local cryptids. Uh, there's actually going to be a Hulu special oh. coming up about the Lizard Man of Skate <gasps> or Swamp of South Carolina. See the 2023 release, The Legend of Lizard Man, which has everything. Night shoots, teenagers in an old van. It's got claw marks, narrow escapes, and dubious reports of a green, wet-like, seven-foot-tall reptilian man with three fingers, red eyes, and snake-like scales, according to an official witness report taken in 1988. You can still get commemorative t-shirts. You can, and I might. I love them because, to me, they are kind of just these expressions of kind of a hope for wonder in the world. And often it's very explicit, uh, almost a kind of a religious impulse behind the desire for these things to be true. Mm -hmm. And I, again, think that in uh, going back to part of our earlier discussion in a world that does sort of feel like there's, you know, not the edges of the map anymore that says here be dragons, things like Bigfoot and the Lizard Man and the Mothman can kind of fulfill that role. Seldom have I seen these kinds of beliefs as opposed to other beliefs circulating out there cause very much harm. You know, it seems to be just kind of a weird hobby for a lot of people. <laughs> and, you know, gods know I'm into weird hobbies. So uh, I think it's fine. I think it's great. I, let me also add that I would absolutely love it if it turned out that there was a Sasquatch oh. or whatever. Like he could show up at my door and I would be really excited about that. <laughs> but I just, so far, you know, we got nothing on that. For those who asked about Bigfoot, looking at you, Sharon Reffeld, Lindsay Mayer, Ed Metzvik, Cole Irwin, Anne-Marie Everhart, and Lily, you can see the forensic ecology episode with Dr. Tiara Moore about her work in a Pacific Northwest forest sequencing DNA of a species of hominid that did not sequence as Homo sapiens, but something just from the genus Homo. And she is known in her lab as a scientist who has found molecular Bigfoot evidence. But she says it's most definitely just degraded human DNA, like an old trail turd. But still, it's cool bragging rights. I guess if nothing else, it's a good way for people to get out, get in, in some, the woods. Yeah, get some low impact <laughs> cardio, you know, yeah. the polyphenols. Yeah, get your steps. Looking for, yeah, <laughs> that's, I think that's the best. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to find that people who believe in Bigfoot are among the most cardiovascularly healthy people in America. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. And, you know, there is that whole argument that like, hey, the, it's the practical effect of your beliefs that matter. So, <laughs> um, yeah, go go Bigfoot hunting. Yeah, sure. Yeah, do it. A lot worse things people get up to. So, you know, go for it. It's very true. Which was my whole point in the Witchology episode, but some of you took it too literally and sucked the fun out of it. Not that I'm disappointed or bitter, just disappointed and a little bitter, but let's change the subject to happier things, like a prehistoric reptile the size of a 35-story building whose name means gorilla whale and is the reigning king of monsters who would not flinch 
It's squishing you like a rotting tomato. Becky the seagrass scientist wants to know thoughts about Godzilla. (laughs) So Godzilla is one of my favorite monsters, (laughs) in part because Gojira, the original film that the Americanized version really sort of (laughs) ripped off, uh, Gojira is sort of one of the most political monster films of the 20th century. It came at a moment in Japan right after the Second World War when, of course, they're still dealing with the legacy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The survivors of those events were still you know, very much a part of public life. And it, it's a film that's quite literally about a destructive horror that is raised by American atomic testing. Wow. And it's a very, very powerful. There's some imagery in the original Japanese film that actually borrows very directly from some of the more famous photographs of Hiroshima. Just picture vistas of rubble, a panorama of unfathomable destruction, and the horrors of a giant city-smashing monster get pulled into pretty sharp focus. And I talked about this a lot in Monsters in America. It is interesting that a few years later, 1956, I believe, when a dubbed American version was released, much of that material was censored out. Uh, references to the atomic bomb, references to atomic testing. You know, an American was made the main character, even while much of the original footage was used. So it's a deeply, deeply political film in its origins. Oh, I did not know that about Zilla. I had no idea. Right. And and it's interesting what uh, American films have done with Godzilla subsequently. Um, The generally accepted as terrible 1990s Godzilla film did this really interesting thing where uh, this is Roland Emmerich um, did this thing where it was nuclear testing that raised Godzilla, but it wasn't (gasps) us. It was the French. Okay, sure. (laughs) It's their fault. Yeah. (laughs) Freaking French, man. Right. (laughs) That's why we call them freedom fries. That's why. Because Godzilla. Um. Oh, we have so many good questions. I have a couple more from listeners, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going, you'll Are have you to kidding? edit me a lot. No, no okay. I love this. I'm like, okay. oh. Well, good. Um, Nicole S. and many others, including Abby Lawson. Who else asked about monsters and horniness? Christine Wenzel, Kendall M., Dylan Veitch are yearning to know. In Abby's words, what's the deal with monsters and horniness? Everyone is so horny for monsters. <laughs> and let's be honest, I'm no exception. Abby said. Um, they want to know, is there a psychological reason behind this? Uh, monsters are really sexy. Your <laughs> listeners are absolutely right about this. And this has been true of the horror film going back to the 1920s. For anyone who thinks that it was either Bell Lugosi's Dracula or Pattinson's Edward that made <laughs> uh, made vampires sexy, they can go have a very weird experience watching the 1922 film Nosferatu. Oh, Nosferatu, of course. Uh, a lot of people know about him from SpongeBob more than uh, <laughs> more than that. A Weimar era silent film. Just a side note, Scott mentioned this as though it were an understandable pop cultural fact, but I was like, excuse me, I need to know how Nosferatu turned up in SpongeBob SquarePants. So I found a 2022 article titled, 
how Nosferatu turned up in SpongeBob SquarePants. And it explained to me that Jay Lender, a SpongeBob writer and storyboard artist, would read horror film magazines in his youth. And a still image from the Nosferatu film just got burned in his brain. So he added it in there. And with 15 million SpongeBob viewers every week at the time of Nosferatu's cameo flicking some lights off and on. Nosferatu! It's possible that this pretty chance and random reference to the vampire is what's kept it so popular among younger generations. And also, Jay Lender knows that the ghoul's real name is Count Orlock, not Nosferatu, and he doesn't want to hear it from you, okay? And yes, we talk more about Nosferatu and Count Orlock in the two-part vampirology episode with Dr. Jeff Holder, who teaches courses on vampires because he is cool. You know, Nosferatu looks like a rat, uh, Nosferatu, he looks like an elderly rat, I think is probably the best <laughs> way to describe his, his face, and has these talons, you know, and has this just absurdly, like, distended frame and arms that just look like they're 10 feet, you know, in length. And yet, <laughs> Ellen, <laughs> the female protagonist of Nosferatu, has a very, very clear fixation on him Mm -hmm. as he does her. And in fact, a fixation on him that exceeds her connection to her young husband. She is not interested at all in what he's up to, but she's all about Nosferatu. Okay, quick story. So recently, Jarrett and our friend Jason were hanging out on the couch watching this 1979 version of Nosferatu while my friend Catherine and I were doing a puzzle at the kitchen table. It was a wild Saturday night. But Kat's back was turned, and for a moment, she earnestly thought that they had switched to watching porn in our living room together while we did a puzzle 10 feet away. Monsters have been putting the bones in boning for eons. Uh, this turns up again and again, you know, I mean, uh, werewolf films, the wonderful 1990s version of the film Candyman with the gorgeous Tony Todd playing the monster. I came for you. But is this very, very sexy, uh, monstrous figure. And one suggestion that has been made, and this may be getting a little too theoretical, but I do feel like... I, you, you tell me after I say this, because I do feel like there's something to this. In the monster film, kind of the two outgroups, the, the two marginal groups, mm-hmm. are the women who are the victims. Right. And the monster that the male heroes are trying to kill. Yes. And so one theory, and it's not mine, and again, I'm not even sure it's true, But I like it. One idea is that there's just kind of this natural alliance between the woman and the monster. Both of them are kind of like subject to, you know, kind of the the patriarchal violence that's going on in the film. Mm -hmm. Again, don't know. I think it's a really, really interesting idea. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. You throw in that too, uh, you know, Jennifer Kent's Babadook, mm-hmm. where, you know, you have the queer coded monster. See a Tumblr post suggesting that the top hatted hollow eyed monster silhouetted by his trench coat 
was a metaphor for the outsider status experienced by so many LGBTQIA plus folks. And suddenly, amid these sunny Pride Parade celebrations, were Babadooks merrily marching along. Director Jennifer Kent has said she thinks it's sweet and she's honored, which kind of is an understatement because being a queer icon, arguably more enviable than Oscar. But okay, Jennifer. Which also was, as I mentioned, a phenomena with Frankenstein. And I, I think that's part of the attraction as, as well. I think it's also tied into just the very fact that there is a element of, of the human psyche that kind of can't look away from what it's disgusted by. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on there for sure. Also, given that the very word teratology has been used and is still used in some cases rather horrifically to describe people with physiological abnormalities and films like Candyman and its 2021 remake feature a villain with a sharp hook fashioned as a prosthetic. This next query submitted by Grace Robichaud, Janetta Soar, Fondo Dondo 35, and Catherine Bend touches on an upcoming episode we have on disability sociology. And a few people actually asked about that intersectionality between disability and illness and monsters and how that's another marginalized group that's been kind of monsterfied. And I wondered, uh, like Kia Kashimoto wants to know, I'd love to hear a discussion of the intersection of monsters and disability. Do we find that that's changed over time at all? Well, in some ways, I think that it has, except, you know, going back to the 1920s, but then also really carrying forward into our monsters in the present, the idea of disfigurement mm -hmm. as of any kind, as representative of the other, I think that that's still an unfortunate part of the horror tradition. Mm -hmm. I, I would say on the more positive side, though, the fact that not unlike folklore, actually. So I don't think that this is new and some attempt to be progressive or something. I think that the idea of the sympathetic monster has always been open to people, uh, open for people who are looking for figures to identify with. Mm -hmm. We've talked a couple of times about Fangoria magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually a few months ago, there was this really wonderful article by a, a frequent writer for Fangoria, who in dealing with cancer had found both solace and identification in David Cronenberg's body horror Ooh. films as she began to experience her own body as alien to her. Mm. I think there's a lot in that that people can find solace in. If you're looking to watch more body horror films by David Cronenberg, please enjoy hits such as Shivers, aka The Parasite Murders, or They Came From Within, which features the barfing of a botfly larva-looking parasite. But there's also Rabid, featuring a woman who, according to your friend Wikipedia, develops an orifice under one of her armpits that hides a phallic clitoral stinger she uses to feed on people's blood. But let's also not forget Scanners, which originated the cinematic device of a human head head exploding. Cronenberg uh, also remade The Fly, in which Jeff Goldblum's sexual magnetism is rather challenged by a tendency to vomit acid on people before eating them. So maybe just skip the popcorn. Let's venture outside to warmer climates at the behest of patrons Shailen Whippert, Connor They Them, and Fondo Dondo 35, and a ton of other people 
in Fondo Dondo's words, you have to ask about the chupacabra. What up with that? Chupacabra, <laughs> is it just a coyote with mange? Uh, I mean, probably. Yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah, I I wish that I could say that no, it's an ancient <laughs> creature of Machika legend that Mayan ruins have images of. But my sense of it in, in terms of what is described that people are seeing, that it either looks like it, it either sounds like maybe it's a small dog with mange, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I think, you know, maybe more likely uh, coyotes. Yeah. I do think, and this gets into a whole other area, but it is interesting that over the last 40 years or so, there's been kind of this interest in what we might call border horror Mm -hmm. all the way back in the 1980s, which became kind of the the first decade of people losing their mind over uh, <laughs> over immigration. Oh, wow. There were urban legends that circulated about satanic circles that were operating just right over the border, that some bodies that had been found, the, the so-called Matamoras slayings, that this was the work of a satanic cult. And to me, Chupacabra seems to kind of fit into some of that kind of monstrous language. I had not heard of the slayings in Matamoros, Mexico, but they involved dozens of ritual homicides by a drug lord. And similarly, when livestock started dying in parts of Puerto Rico, communities suspected either blood draining by a cult or possibly a large reptilian creature, hence the chupacabra, which means goat sucker. In northern parts in the United States, chupacabra sightings tend to be described as more dog-like, and experts agree they're just free-range canines with a little bit of skin disease. They're like, get off my back. I have a fucking rash. And yeah, I will eat your goats. And who could blame them? But moving along, or rather looping back to Frankenstein's, as we mentioned in the vampirology episode, in 1816, there was this volcanic eruption, and the resulting atmospheric effect led to a year without a summer. So a bunch of hot goth writers holed up in an Italian villa, and among them were Mary Shelley and Lord Byron. And they were like, what if we have like a ghost story writing competition between us? And shablam, Lord Byron makes a vampire tale that changes pop culture, and Mary Shelley writes a book about a reanimated corpse. And I know we've touched on Frankenstein a bit. Susan C. Lester and Verena Renstadler need to know definitively, Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster? What do you call it? (sighs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) here's the thing. (laughs) Now, so it's absolutely proper to say Frankenstein's monster. Okay. So I, I can definitively say that. However, <laughs> however, I, I think that like it also has made this certain kind of sense that the monster and the creator have kind of shared their name. And this is actually referenced in some of the sequels to Frankenstein. So many of your listeners probably haven't seen Son of Frankenstein. And Son of Frankenstein, which I think is 1939, there's actually this whole discussion that kind of lays it out like, hey, you know, everybody says Frankenstein, but that's my dad's <laughs> name. Uh, the monster was his monster. Dr. Frankenstein was my dad. Please call me MC Frankie Dank. I think that it's almost more interesting to me that the creator that unleashed something that couldn't be controlled and then the monster that we're mostly sympathetic for, we we use the same word. And everybody knows what we mean. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think that has anything to do with dysfunctional parenting and a father putting too much <laughs> pressure on a son to carry on a lineage? Uh, I think in the original version of the novel, not the one that she released in 1831 when she became a little older and a little more conservative, but in the original version of the novel, my sense is that it's God and human beings. Mm. Yeah, that Dr. Frankenstein is quite literally the creator that gives his creature, his creation, something that the creation never really asked for, Ah. right? And then kind of like said, well, you didn't turn out quite like I, (laughs) quite like I wanted. So, you know, (laughs) good luck to go live in the woods, you know? Uh, So, yeah, I think that James Whale in the films is aware of that because there's a lot of interesting religious and actually anti-religious imagery that I, speaking of things that I don't think people picked up on Mm -hmm. at the time. See, for example, all the crosses in the cemetery, the Dr. Frankenstein's cocky attempt at creating life and resurrecting his monster who could be interpreted as kind of a blasphemous symbol of Jesus Christ. Also, the not-so-subtle appearance of Milton's epically long poem, Paradise Lost, which some people consider kind of like fanfic about Satan fallen from the graces of God and launching his own hell hotel of agony in the afterlife. Also, did you know that the actor who played Frankenstein so wonderfully in James Whale's versions was actually born William Pratt, but he thought it sounded too boring. So he went by Boris Karloff and he was baroque until he landed that role in his mid forties and then became a famous Hollywood celeb. How about that? So sometimes the star power of a monster is just right under our noses, but Hey, what's under our beds? patrons ask, such as Anna Thompson, Anna Easton, Sophie Philpott, Francesca Huggins, eating dog hair for a living, Pickles, Jenna Briner, Anne Ebby, Kieran, Average Pie, Stephen Lee, Holly Cole, and Sarah Cork Henderson. A lot of people wanted to know, monsters under the bed. Have you ever had one under the bed? Why are they under the bed? And then uh, Christine Galarski, first-time question asker, said, I can't believe I'm asking this. When I was in the fourth grade, I had an experience with a monster that I cannot convinced my brain was not real. I remember so many vivid details. I'm almost 40 and I still believe this is real. I know it's weird. (laughs) And a ton of people wanted to know. Baloney Shoes wants to know what is the best way to explain to my very curious and mature three-year-old that monsters are not real, but the monsters we have are stories. So are they under the bed? What happens if you think one's real? And what do you tell your kids? I, uh, so I saw monsters oh! when I was a little kid. Yeah, I, I used to say, again, you know, I'm like consuming like all those horror films from the 30s and 40s. And so, you know, I had these experiences where I thought I was seeing things. And sometimes it terrified me. Most of the time it terrified me. Occasionally it kind of delighted me, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, one thing I would say to your listener, uh, this is going to be really counterintuitive and Maybe they could simply chalk this up to that I'm not actually a parent. So, you know, maybe this is bad advice. But (laughs) don't tell your kids that monsters aren't real yet. The opinions expressed by the ologist are those of the ologist. Don't write me letters. They're probably going to have nightmares because my understanding is children do that. (laughs) And uh, guess what? They're also going to have nightmares when they're 50. Uh, Like, you're not going to make that go away. Mm. Their bodies and brains, our bodies and brains are doing something that's important when that's happening. So I don't think that like 
as much as I myself am not a believer in the supernatural, you know, I, I don't think that we need to do like the disenchantment of the universe for a three-year-old or whatever. <laughs> like they're going to figure out themselves that, you know, the really scary things are not under the bed and in the closet. Mm. So let them have, you know, the scariness and the the wonder of that. I mean, but I mean, I'm just talking out of my head. I, I don't have kids. I, I'm not the one who has to deal with the screaming in the middle of night, right? So I can say anything I want to about this. I don't have kids either, but I have a dog that sometimes goes, burf, burf, burf. Yes, same. So I let her dream about whatever she wants to. Well, see, and actually our dogs, uh, we're not really clear if they're having a nightmare or if they're engaged in some kind of merry chase. Right. And honestly, I think that might tell us something about dreaming and nightmares and those kinds of experiences in general for humans. You know, I mean, I think we need to be able to have those kinds of things to make sense of the world. Clearly, we do not know how to parent. Do not take our advice. But you know who might know how is authors of the 2020 study, Monsters at Bedtime, Managing Fear in Bedtime Picture Books for Children, which cites a 1996 study saying that the monster always signifies something other than itself, while a 2014 study poses that monsters have a distinct function as psychological tools to help children cope with problems and anxieties. Okay, but what do you do about them. It depends on how old the kiddo is. There was a 2009 study titled Scaring the Monster Away, What Children Know About Managing Fears of Real and Imaginary Creatures. And it found that younger kids, like under seven, don't do well with reality affirmation, saying there is no monster, but rather it helps to reframe things like, sure, maybe there is a monster drooling under your bed, but she's tired, just like you, and eats dust bunnies, not people. Older than around seven responds better to, nope, nope, monsters are not real, unless they're Gila monsters, which are cool lizards that will chomp your arm so hard you'll wish you were never born. All right, love you. Night-night. Also, for more on dreaming and nightmares, see the Onorology two-parter from January. And if you're still like, okay, but who decides monsters were under anyone's bed? The answer is your ancestors who use these folkloric kind of scare tactics to get kids to bed at an earlier time. Although in Japan, where it's more common to sleep with a mat and a mattress on the floor, maybe you have to tell kids that the boogeyman is chilling in the hamper, being like, get some shut eye, sweetie Petey. Ooh, ooh, I smell like socks, which sounds honestly like more friend than foe. Well, Margot Lewis, Diana, and Daniel Gill all wanted to know, in Margot's words, are there monsters who are not scary at all and might even be cute? And another patron asked about Pokemon pocket monsters. Mm -hmm. So any lore on benevolent monsters? I have one that I really like. One example of this, it, it would be our friend uh, with the, the, the human head necklace, Yama Taka, <laughs> right? Like, so, no, I don't know that we would necessarily call him cute, but he's definitely good. There is kind of this sweet monster called a leshy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Siberian folklore. Their name means something like the tree people. And they're often portrayed as being kind of scary when he's not kind of real scary when you see them, but also weirdly sweet. Uh, they actually like help shepherds and cow herds oh. and they protect sheep from wolves. And uh, if you hear noises in the trees, 
it's a leshy that's weeping because one of their favorite trees was cut down. Oh. So that's kind of nice. Now, on the other hand, they are cloven hoofed and covered in long tangled black hair and occasionally still children. Um, and also can turn you to stone if they get angry with you. Uh, so there is that. But their emotional intelligence seems to be really high, is what I'm saying. I still don't want to <laughs> match with them on Tinder, though, you know? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I, I don't know that that would work out. But, oh, and here's the thing. Uh, I, I guess when you said Tinder, this made me think of this. So, like, if you make them mad... If they don't turn you to someone, the other things they might do is they might tickle you till you die. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is part of the lore, like coming back hundreds <laughs> no. of years. And and yeah, and I don't know, like, I don't think it's actually possible to like tickle someone to death, <laughs> but like, that's what the oh, less she, the less she do. I, <laughs> I guess also <laughs> the last app a tree would be on is Tinder, probably. <laughs> right, right. Something burning? Not okay. <laughs> um, that's such a good one. Uh, you know, last questions I always ask guests is the hardest thing about your job and the easiest, but I'm going to take a pivot and ask what monster just g- makes you give an exasperated sigh? Just like, not this one again. Which one do you hate the most? Uh, I still can't take Twilight. <laughs> So, okay, just real quick. So (laughs) a a number of my students of of like this particular generation are kind of part of the fan Twilight fan community that has tried to kind of uh, do reparative work (laughs) on that (laughs) and find something empowering in it. And so they have a few have kind of made it their, their task to, you know, educate me on this and, <laughs> and, and to particularly try to reclaim the films. But I'm just, uh, you know, and, and I entertained it for a while. <laughs> and I'm also glad that people have found things in it that are empowering. But I, I just really still think it's just reactionary garbage. <laughs> I, I just everything from making the vampires toothless uh, or, or at least fangless to, you know, using an actual First Nations mythological system and changing it around, mm-hmm. you know, and, and turning them into werewolves. I mean, like to the point that tourists, you know, apparently want to talk to them about their werewolf mythology. Oh. And that's just something, you know, that Meyer came up with. Obviously the general portrayal of a very patriarchal romance and, you know, a very weird power dynamic with the whole, would we say May, December romance? Mm. It's something more <laughs> yeah. than that, right? Cause yeah. he's like 200 and she's like 19 or whatever. Well, and it's got kind of a pro chastity message as well, right? It does. It does. The uh, very famous uh, feminist essay on Twilight that referred to it as as chastity porn. It actually first appeared in the midst of the so-called purity movement among evangelicals, the true love waits stuff. And it very definitely, I think, has a gendered politics. So, you know, more power to students of this generation that are finding queer coding and feminist messages. But this is, uh, 
I am one unconvinced old lefty <laughs> that still thinks it's just garbage. I can't do it. Well, maybe that makes it the scariest monster movie of all in different ways. It is a scary, and I have, you know, I read the books and I watched one of the films. I couldn't do, I couldn't get past. <laughs> the films are better than the books. What about your favorite monster? There's got to be one that if you had to if you were going to buy a monster t-shirt, this would be the one. If you have a Halloween costume, you'd have to decide on forever every year. This would be the one. <laughs> Which one is it? I love, and I mean in a weird way, The Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, that's great. The film, but also her. Uh, in fact, I'm wearing a Bride of <gasps> Frankenstein t-shirt. No! So, yeah. <laughs> so... That was an easy one. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, playing off of some of the religious undertones of that story, she's sort of Eve that said no to the plan for her. She doesn't want to be anybody's helpmate. Uh, she she turns that down pretty strongly. And also just the impact that Elsa Lanchester's portrayal of her had on kind of the iconography of Mont. I mean, just like Frankenstein, if I say Bride of Frankenstein, you see that hair mm -hmm. and you see that extraordinary kind of art deco design of her. And she's only in the film like five minutes, <sighs> you know, at the end. I didn't realize you know? and that. It, it's some of the best five minutes of film in the whole horror tradition, oh. you know. And? Friend? She hate me. Anyway, Bride Frankenstein for sure. I'll have to send you a picture. I went as her for Halloween. I have very curly, voluminous hair, you might say. It's <laughs> like... Gotta send you a picture. Well, please do. I actually have a collection of <laughs> friends that have done The Bride of Frankenstein. And so I have quite a collection because people have always gotten me like sort of Bride of Frankenstein. I almost have too much at this point, really. <laughs> but can can you have too much of her? I don't think so. Apparently not. Yeah. No, she's extraordinary. And my friend Catherine taught me that if you have long enough hair, you can put a liter bottle on top of your head and then oh. put a ponytail on top. How smart. Yeah. So you're just kind of, you just nestle the bottle on a ponytail on the very top of your head and you're halfway there. All you need is some baby powder or something. So Jack Pierce, who did the makeup for Elsa Lanchester in 35, he actually used a part of a birdcage. <gasps> did he? Yes. And it, I, I guess like with you, Allie, it was her hair. That was Elsa Lanchester's hair. That was her actual, I always would have thought that was like an appliance. Yes. <gasps> it is not any kind of appliance. That is her hair just partially dyed. I think that it's actually, you can't tell this in the film, but it's actually dyed red oh. so that it would have some texture kind of on black and white film. Mm -hmm. And also so that sort of the white, like kind of lightning streaks, you know, would kind of show off to advantage. They need to do some sort of comedy mashup, like the Bridesmaids of Frankenstein. I think that'd be a great <laughs> one. <laughs> this is spin -off. Right. And like, they're all angry at like how much they had to pay yeah. for their lab uh, garments. Exactly. Their burial shrouds were so expensive that they had to take out a student loan. To, yeah. They're like, I'll never wear this shroud again. <laughs> right. How dare she? Right. <laughs> 
Oh my God, <laughs> this has been such a joy. I cannot tell you. Well, for me too, Allie. Oh. I really enjoyed it, yeah. So ask smart people spooky questions and enjoy Dr. Scott Poole's latest book, Dark Carnivals, Modern Horror and the Origins of American Empire. He also authored Monsters in America, Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror, and In the Mountains of Madness, The Life and Extraordinary Afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft. All are linked in the show notes, so get them on your reading list. Again, gorgeous writing, so much knowledge. Thank you so much for being on, Scott. And again, a donation was made to rescue.org in his name, which is also linked in the show notes. Our webpage for this episode, aliware.com slash ology slash teratology is linked in the show notes. It has tons of links to clips and research as well. We're at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ali Ward with one L on both. Eric Talbert, Admin Theology's podcast Facebook group. Noelle Dilworth is our scheduling producer. Emily White of The Wordery makes our professional transcripts. Susan Hale is our managing director and did a ton of producing on this as well. We also have Smology's episodes available for the kiddos in your life. They're shorter, clean, classroom-safe versions of classic episodes. Thank you to Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio and Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas and Jarrett Sleeper of Gem Media for working on those. Kelly Ardwire makes our website and can make yours too. And thanks to the electrifyingly wonderful lead editor, Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio for the hard work in assembling and bringing this to life. Nick Thorburn of the band Islands made our theme music. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. And this week, it's that I've been drinking a lot of chai tea. I've told you before, spicy chai. Add a little cayenne, add a little black pepper in there. So good. Uh, yesterday, I was writing this episode and I microwaved the same cup of tea no fewer than six times. I just kept microwaving it, walking away, forgetting, and I just kept redoing it. Anyway, I'm about to hop on a flight back to California. I've been in Connecticut. I went to an apple orchard. We carved pumpkins. I curled up by a fire. I've been having a real fall day, but now I'm back to LA where I think it's about 90 degrees. Okay, see you next week for our final Spooktober. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.